as we continue making our way through the book of Revelation. Last week, we actually looked at uh, chapters 15 and 16, uh, the, the bowls of wrath being poured out on the earth. And we're told that with these bowls of wrath, the wrath of God is complete. Uh, remember when John sees the sign. So there's the event of the angels coming out. They receive these bowls, and then they begin to pour them out. But even before that, John says that he saw another sign in heaven, and it was great and marvelous. It was great and marvelous because it's the finish line. It's, it's John getting a glimpse of this troubling time, this tribulation, the worst time in the history of the world has an end to it. And it's in sight from John's perspective as he sees these things. Uh, and we've seen some, some pretty amazing things. In chapter 14, we saw angels uh, circling the earth, preaching the gospel, and talking uh, that the great Babylon has fallen. And really, all three of the angels are pleading with all of mankind. Turn away from the beast. Turn away from the mark. Don't buy into this world system. Come to Jesus Christ is the idea. Right? It's this supernatural event. But to all those that have said, we don't need Jesus. We don't want anything from him. The, bo the bowls of wrath being poured out are giving the people of the earth exactly what they've asked for. It's Jesus removing his hand of protection from the earth on every aspect. Things that people take for granted. Things like the sun and the sea and the waters to drink. And now all of a sudden that has all gone bad. And we saw that there's been a couple of overviews that take us through these just kind of touching on points that, that go all the way up to the day of Armageddon, and then we go back. And so now as we go back in chapter 17, we're going to have details filled in on Babylon the Great, uh, which we'll see is a lot more than simply a city on the earth. It, it encompasses a whole lot of things uh, that actually go all the way, or almost all the way back. So uh, let's pray, and we'll get into chapter 17. Lord Jesus, as always, we desperately want to hear from you. We pray that you would take your word and teach it to us. Holy Spirit, that you would apply it to our lives. And uh, we just, we want to leave here changed. We want to leave here knowing you more, Lord. And uh, we just give ourselves and we give this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So verse 1, chapter 17. So then one of the angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of the abominations and, and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead was written, on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, of the abominations of the earth. 
And the woman, drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. And then the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. Now, as this angel comes up, this is one of the angels that had poured out the, one of the bulls on the earth. And he tells John um, that he's going to show him the judgment of Babylon the Great, or the great harlot that sits on many waters. Now, there's going to be a city, or this is describing a city, but like I said uh, at the beginning, it's a lot more than that. And because it's a lot more than that, as it talks about Babylon, and we get the, the definitions and the ideas and things that surround this Babylon, uh, it can be a little bit confusing. Because we, are we talking about a city? Are we talking about a uh, uh, what, what part of these things are, are we talking about? Well, it's, it's many things. Like I said, it's, it is a city, but it also represents a world religion, a world political system, and a world economic system that will exist at this time. But it all comes down to the same heart or the same spirit that's behind it, right? So whether we're talking about the city or the economic system or the religion— uh, a lot of the stuff we're going to be looking at today is, is mainly focused on the world religion, but it's the same heart behind it all. And, and really to understand that, it goes all the way back to the, the establishment of Babylon, back in Genesis 11. Remember, they build a tower. And well, first of all, even before they build the city of Babylon, they're told by God to go out into all the earth. And, and so they don't. They stay in one place. We're not going to go out. We're going to stay here. And they build this great city, and then they decide to build a city or a tower as a monument to themselves. And, and that's really kind of the idea of it, is that the city of the original Babylon and the tower are a rebellion against God. It's saying this is what we can do in our intellect, in our spirituality, in our ability. Without you, God, we don't need you. It's that that's the heart between Babylon then, and the spirit of it now, and what it will be in the future during the tribulation, is that God's dealing with man's rebellion, and there are symbol, an attempt at wisdom and power and spirituality apart from the one true God. Now, there is the literal city of Babylon uh, in Iraq. And it's interesting, I've seen photos of what they believe to be with the foundation of the, the city or the tower of Babel. And it's, it's breathtaking. Uh, a, a friend of mine was there, she, she took photos. They couldn't actually go to it because uh, there's still landmines all over the place at that time. Uh, but she took photos, and at first it just looks like a hill. And I'm like, um, that's a hill. And she goes, no, look close, look, look at the base of it. And there's an area that had been excavated, and it's bricks. This entire hill is man-made bricks. And uh, right next to there is the modern Babylon. Uh, Saddam Hussein made it his goal to rebuild the city of Babylon. And that was going to be his claim to fame. That didn't work out so well. Uh, and now it is this huge city that's completely vacant. And people ask, well, is it that city? 
will that city be like the center of the of everything? Probably not. I mean, it could be. We don't know for sure. But uh, there's a couple things that point us to the, the idea or the fact, I think, that this is a modern Babylon. It isn't the rebuilt Babylon. It's not a city with the actual name Babylon. It's a, a city that we know of that exists today, uh, not one that will be built after the tribulation begins. Uh, so with all of these things that we're going to look at, and there's several of them, we're going to continue to see them as we, we go on over the, the next few chapters. Uh, first of all, it says that in verse 1, that sits on many waters. Uh, a lot of times people will say, well, okay, so it has to be a city that has a lot of water around it. That's really not what it's talking about. It, it means that it has authority over many countries or many waters, many oceans, many everywhere. It's, the idea it's got a worldwide influence is what this uh, is, is speaking of. And, and as I said, I think this is a city that already exists, that has been a great influence religiously, politically, economically. And there's a lot of indications that it's speaking of Rome. Uh, I think the mistake has been made. I believe it's a mistake. A lot of people will go, well, okay, if it's talking about Rome, it's talking about a religious system that's connected to Rome, that must be the Roman Catholic, Catholic Church. Uh, and I think that misses the point completely, right? Because the one world religion will be a religion that has never existed before. I believe a good chance it'll be cobbled together with whatever's left, right? And so it might have aspects of the Roman Catholic Church, but it will also have aspects of Buddhism or whatever. It'll just be all these different things mashed together, right? But it doesn't exist now. And I think that's caused a lot of division and, and done a lot of harm in the past as people have pointed to the Roman Catholic Church as, as being the great Babylon. I don't believe that that's true. Uh, again, it's a, it's a religion that will bring the world together. It is that same spirit of Babylon. The idea of being spiritual, being religious, being righteous without Jesus. In fact, without God. That we're doing this in our own ability. This is a, a worldwide religion for man, about man, that worships man, right? That's the idea that, that absolutely opposed to Jesus Christ, attempting to look loving, be accepting, look godly, act righteous, but we don't need God at all, right? Now, Babylon is described as the great harlot, literally the great prostitute. And that's the idea, right? It's speaking of a spiritual adultery. It's, it's turning your back on God, worshiping anything else but him. That's the kind of adultery that is being spoken of. The idea is that selling the people whatever they want, not for their good, not for joy, not for their peace or freedom, but to keep them from Jesus Christ. You know, that's, that's, if you want to sum up the motive of the devil, that's it right there. He doesn't care what you believe. He doesn't care if you believe in him. He doesn't care if you believe in good or evil. As long as you believe in anything else but Jesus. 
That's it. That's his only motive. He'll give you whatever he wants. He'll give you whatever you think you need in order to keep you distracted, to keep you apart. They're called lying wonders is the idea. Just, just lying to you and just to keep you interested as long as you're going off track away from Jesus Christ. And that's what the, the great harlot will do. This world religion will sell people whatever they want to keep them distracted. And that's the purpose of this Babylon. The, this world religion will be, will be in this city that is also called Babylon, filled with every adultery, every fornication, and it leads the kings of the earth, and they gladly follow after it. It's going to be a source of power. We're going to see more of that as we go on. Is not just a supernatural power. There will be that because the devil himself is empowering this world religion, but there's a political power in religion. We already know that. Look at world history. Look at church history. There is money and power in religion. And this is going to be the culmination of all of that evil into one place. Again, man's efforts, man's ability, just like the tower, man's strength, all apart from God, this will be the final culmination of it in Babylon, religiously, politically, and economically. Now, verse 3 gives us a, a couple insights about this world religion. It says that John uh, is carried away to a wilderness. And that is the perfect picture of spirituality without Jesus. It is a wilderness. It is desolate. It is bare. It leaves you thirsty and wanting something that you will never find where you're at. It is a wilderness. Warren Wearsby, speaking of this very thing, uh, he made this comparison. He said, God originally placed man in a perfect, as a perfectly pure bride in the most beautiful garden ever. And man, in his greatest effort apart from God, creates a harlot in the wilderness. That's a great description. This is what religion looks like. This is what religiosity looks like. You can have all the trappings. You can have all the, the words. You can sound super spiritual, righteous, all of those things. And you can do all of that and basically just be a social club. And other people will gather to that as well because, hey, we'll be good people and we'll gather together to be around other good people. And we'll all talk about what good people we are. And you can do it all without Jesus, but it is an absolute wasteland. Now, this world religion, uh, which is really the, the picture of the woman that we're told here. And again, you know, it, it gets a little bit confusing because there are times where John says, and I saw another sign in heaven, and he describes the dragon, and then he describes the beast. And we go, well, okay, he said it's a sign, therefore we know it's a symbol, right? It's not a literal dragon, a literal beast. It's symbolic of something else. And in this case with the woman, he doesn't say that he saw a sign of a woman. But we see the woman interacting with the other signs that we know, with the beast. And so again, this is, this is all symbolic. It takes a little bit to, to put it together, but it makes sense. And we see that she is riding the same beast that we saw in chapter 13, which is a picture of the Antichrist. And it's interesting because while 
so far, we've talked about the Antichrist being this guy who comes on the scene, the world's going to love him, and they will, and he's going to have all of the power, he's going to be the first world leader, literally the ever, ever in the history of the world, he'll be the only one to rule the entire world. But as the picture is given to us here, the woman is riding the beast. She's in control. She's the one leading things. And that seems a little contrary to what we've seen before, but it makes sense. That as she rides upon the beast, it's actually exactly what the Antichrist and the false prophet want people to think. They want to look like they're serving a higher power. They want the world to think that they're the most humble people. Oh no, don't put me in charge. Don't let me be the leader. We'll all lead together. And, and we'll serve this higher power, this one world religion, this one purpose for all mankind. And it looks like they're just servants like everybody else, right? For the first three and a half years of the tribulation, it's exactly what it'll look like. So much so that Israel will believe that this guy is the Messiah. Again, not serving himself, serving other people, being led around by this world religion. And then halfway through the tribulation, the truth of who he is will come out. And we're going to see that that switch also takes place. Well, it starts off with a woman riding the beast in charge. In the end, she's destroyed, made desolate. Used up is the idea. As I said, there is great power and money uh, in false religion or in Christianity misused. And unfortunately, there's far too much of that in world history. But this will be the, the apex of it all. Because as this woman is described, this one world religion is described, it says that she is clothed in purple and scarlet. These were the color in John's days of luxury and power and royalty. For a person to be clothed in purple and scarlet meant that they were somebody of great power. You didn't just wear that going to the market, right? They were rare dyes, rare clothes. Only royalty would usually wear them. They also were synonymous with great luxury. So she's adorned in gold precious stones and pearls. And in her hand is a golden cup. Again, all symbols of great prosperity and wealth. This woman, this religion, outwardly will be absolutely beautiful. It'll be insanely wealthy and strong and alluring to the people of the earth. And we get some idea of this. And this is just a little thing. It's easy to roll right past. Remember, John is seeing this symbol. But it's, as he's seeing it, it, it gives us an idea of how alluring this whole thing will be. Because in verse 6, John says, And I marveled with great amazement. The idea is that he sees her, and he is in awe of her. She is breathtakingly beautiful. And even though John knows all that is involved with her, that she has been drunk on the blood of the saints, and that in that golden cup is filthiness, he is still amazed by her beauty. That even the angel's like, what are you looking at? <laughs> Why are you amazed at her? 
don't you know? Let me tell you what she's all about. And that's what the angel's going to do. But I think John gives us an idea that this world religion, you know, it's easy for us to look at it and go, who would fall for that? Who would really buy into that? It is going to be alluring. It is going to be beautiful. It's going to be what our sin nature, our fallen nature has always desired, right? And so mankind, those who've not come to Christ, are going to flock to this world religion. Now, the angel says, he asks, why, why did you marvel? And then he get, begins to explain, or he's, he's gonna, going to start to explain that all of these things, this picture of this woman, again, is that spirit of Babylon, all fulfilled in this world religion, which is based in a city. It also seems to be the, the center for the economic power and, and politics. All of that will be based around this one city. This religious worship without the involvement of the one true God at all. And both the city and this false religion on the outside are going to be breathtaking. They're going to be amazing. But inside, they will bring only death. Now verse 8. It says, The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundations of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. And here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And there are also seven kings Five have fallen, one is, and the other is not yet. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. Now that's a tongue twister, first of all. All of that stuff. And it's a tough section of Scripture. It's one of those that if you, if you do some research, you'll, you'll find a lot of opinions, a lot of conjecture, uh, and, and frankly, a lot of confusion. So hopefully I'm not going to add to that confusion. I'm going to try and kind of avoid those things that are obviously opinion and avoid those things that uh, are conjecture and, and maybe try and bring a little bit of light to it. Uh, but what, we're, what we see here is really the close intertwined nature of the devil the Antichrist, Babylon, the religion, and the city of Rome. Because they're all kind of put together in the same place. Now, verse 8 is probably one of the parts that's uh, most confusing as it talks about the beast that was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. Um, now, in John's day, if you had to take a guess at uh, the characters on the scene in that day of, of, okay, well, who would you say is the beast? Well, it would have been an easy answer. It's Caesar Nero, right? He, uh, out of all of the Caesars, wasn't that bad at his start. He's still horrible, <laughs> but compared to the others, he had a decent start. And it's interesting. If you look at the history, 
that he did pretty good right up until he met with Paul the Apostle. Remember when Paul was on his way to Rome, and that's where the book of Acts ends, as he's awaiting his trial before Caesar. Well, we, didn't, we don't get to hear anything or read anything in Acts about his trial before Caesar, but we got several of other trials that he was in where he just preaches the gospel, right? Just unloads the truth of Jesus Christ. So we can bet he did the exact same thing before Caesar. And it was right after that. Well, first of all, Caesar hears him, goes, this guy hasn't broken any crime, broken any laws. We're going to let him go. Let's Paul go. But it was right after that, Caesar loses his mind. Goes absolutely crazy. Has a warrant for Paul's arrest and execution. And has him arrested and brought back again. And then begins this horrible time of persecution against the church. Burning down part of Rome because he wanted to expand and make it nice, and he blamed it on the Christians, and, and burned Christians alive. I mean, it's, it's gruesome, the things that he did. So he makes this huge jump, this huge switch, um, and there's really not much argument that not only was he inspired and empowered by the devil, but there was possession that took place, that there was such a dark, dark evil about him. And not just against people, against the followers of Jesus Christ, a hatred for the things of Jesus. This may be referring, I believe it is, to the power that was behind Nero will also be the same power behind the Antichrist. And though I said demonic power, I don't mean that it was a demon. I believe it was the devil. In fact, it's very clear here that it talks about the power of the one who ascends out of the bottomless pit. That's speaking of the devil. Now, from John's point of view, as, as he was hearing these things, the beast or the empowerment behind Nero um, has already started, has already taken place. There's already been that persecution of Nero. So that's the beast or the one that was. John has seen the evil that empowered Nero. But as John writes this, Nero has just passed away. And so he was, and he is not. But the power that empowered Nero of the devil will also be the one behind the Antichrist, and so he yet is. Right? It's a little confusing, but I believe that's what it's pointing to. Not to Nero, not even to the Antichrist, but to the devil behind the Antichrist and that persecution at that time. Verse 9 says that the seven heads of the beast are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Uh, this is where Rome comes in. Even today, Rome is called the city of seven hills. And in, in John's day, it had the same name. People referred to Rome being the city of seven hills. We're, all, we're told that there are also seven kings or seven kingdoms. Again, this gets a little bit confusing because the way that it, it's fired off at John, and we're like, what in the world is that talking about? Well, first, it's speaking of the kingdoms that have happened before John's day. So it says that, uh, that five have fallen. Well, by the time John wrote this, the world, the great world kingdoms were Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, and Greece. Five have fallen. One now is, in John's day. 
That's Rome. And then one will come after this, which is that one world coming together, which will seem to just kind of come together on its own, but will be taken over by the Antichrist, and he will be the eighth. So that's kind of the the process, right? Five have fallen, one now is, one will come after this, and then finally the eighth, which will be the kingdom of the Antichrist itself. And and it's going to be a short time that he's allowed to have that kingdom, but that will be the final and eighth kingdom. And again, we see this tie-in to Rome, that he'll be one of the seven. It's going to be connected to one of the seven that had come before. So I hope that made, I made that real confusing for everybody. I love that kind of stuff. <laughs> Just so you know, I get into that, and I'm like, i got to hold back of all these other crazy little things and rabbit trails I can go down. But we should just move on. So, verse 12. It says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings, who have received no kingdom as of yet, but they will receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, And the Lamb will overcome them, for He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those who are with Him are called chosen and faithful. And then He said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot and make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to fulfill His purpose to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. These things are still ahead. So John is seeing things that were present in his day, had happened before his day, and things that were in the future. But now he just is given to the things that are not only in John's future, but also in ours. These ten horns that are on the beast are ten kings who have received no kingdom. That During the tribulation, the idea is that these ten rulers are going to be nobodies and suddenly thrust into power. The great authority is given to them, but again, very, a very short time and compared to other world kingdoms. And their purpose is to then hand that power right back to the Antichrist and to fight against Jesus and all those who follow him, to fight against the Lamb. Verse 15 says, kind of gives us an idea of how these ten kings and uh, the Antichrist are connected to the harlot. That she sits on many waters, which are multitudes, peoples, nations, and tongues. The idea is a sea of humanity, right? We still use that term. So though it's a picture of waters, it's, it's a, a term we still understand, the sea of humanity, that it's, it's not divided by countries or continents or borders, that at that time, this world religion will have a full world authority, and these kings and the Antichrist will 
allow that to happen, want that to happen. They're going to be the ones behind it. And again, to me, I look at this and I'm like, this is all just good marketing. The way these guys market this one world religion starts off with the idea of like, hey, we're just servants like everybody. You know, we're just doing the right thing because we're all good people and we can all just come together in unity. And that all sounds great, but it's marketing. That's all it is. It's just selling an old, old product, right? The old false religion just repackaged and they have done a masterful job at this. That she sits on many waters, has a full authority worldwide over the whole sea of humanity. But the ten kings will hate her. They hate the religion. They hate everything about it. It just gets them what they want. They're just using it, right? So they look like they're servants, but they're not. They look like they're giving, but they're not. They look like they care about humanity. They don't. They're simply using it to gain. And again, we don't have to look all that far back in world history to go, that's pretty common. World religion, false religion, cults, or even huge churches have done the same thing on a smaller level. But this one will go global. This will be worldwide. And these 10 kings, they know what's up. They're not fooled. They're not buying into it. They hate her, and they will make her desolate. They're going to use this world religion and manipulate people with it, but they don't believe a word of it. They hate it. And when they've used it for all they can, when it's completely used up, it'll be disregarded. Again, it's good marketing, right? They're making themselves look good. They're making the Antichrist look good and the false prophet look good. They look spiritual. They look righteous, but it's all an act. At the beginning, it looks like she's leading the beast. But the fact is, the beast and these ten kings will make her desolate. And verse 18 says, And the woman whom you saw, that is that great city that reigns over the kings of the earth. This is important. Again, this points to Rome because it's told to John in the present tense. This is the city which reigns over the kings of men. In John's day, that was Rome. And he knew that, right? So it's not saying will reign over, or eventually, he's saying, John, this is the one that's reigning over the kings of men now. I think this is a great example to us. Again, you know, every time we read a chapter, I just feel like the chapter itself is so intense. You know, there's so much going on. And then I try and do the wrap-up on it, and it's like, and, you know, be good people. <laughs> you know, it just always seems like such a, such a uh, so small in comparison to the intensity of the chapter. But as I, as I read through this, the thing that, uh, that caught me was it's such a great example about the subtlety of sin. Right? I mean, go all the way back to the... the city of Babel when they built the tower, and how easy it would have been to justify. Hey, guys, wouldn't it be great if we all just worked together to build something amazing? And everyone, of course, is like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's build something. <laughs> what if we built a tower? And it'll be like a symbol of, of us as a as the human race. Well, that sounds great. Again, so much more subtle than we think. And yet that attitude that started then has carried 
all the way through humanity, every tribe, every language, every culture. And it's going to culminate here at the great harlot of Babylon. But it's been the same attitude all along. It started small. It started easily justified. And again, that's, that's how sin always is. It's small. It's easily justified. It's just an attitude. It's just a thing. Hey, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be great if we did this, right? And it just takes us so far in the wrong direction. The subtlety of pride itself. I can do this myself. And, and I, I find that for myself, I, I cringe uh, when somebody offers to help me. It's my own pride, right? Somebody's like, hey, I can see... Jack, I see you're struggling. <laughs> I hear that fairly often. <laughs> Let me help you. No, I can do it myself. I'll, I'll handle it myself, right? And it's just, it's that little seed of pride and how quickly that can grow. And I think for us as believers, that's something we need to be very careful of because I know, I know I'm not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> I think many of us are very good at serving others. Very good at blessing others. We are not very good at being blessed or being served. That when another comes along and says, let me help you, we go, no, 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 no. I can do it myself. I can do it myself is where Babylon started. That little idea, I can do it myself, suddenly turns into, and I know what's best for me. And that turns into, and God, you can't tell me what to do. But it starts with, I can do it myself. We need to be those who I know it is uncomfortable to let others help. To humble ourselves and say, yeah, I could use a hand. And let others be the one to give the blessing and not steal that, right? Because that's really what we're doing. We're actually taking away somebody's blessing when we go, no, I don't need your help. Don't, don't be a blessing to me. <laughs> we don't say it quite like that, but that's what we're doing, right? I'll choose my own way. I'll do it my own way. And it's really easy to start blurring lines and justifying. And, and that's just the way of sin. That's the way of temptation it takes us down the wrong road, right? And just like Babylon, just like the city, just like the religion, just like all of this lie that's going to be sold during the, the, the end times, it starts so small, and it looks so good from the outside. In fact, it can be breathtaking. It can be alluring even. It promises so much, but in the end, it is a desolate wasteland. And we can know that without a doubt, looking at our own lives, looking at temptation we've fallen into, looking at sin that we've fallen into, that we were sold something, and that is not how it ended up, ever. We will always end up with the desolate wasteland. And I not only have seen it in my own life, I've seen it in people I care so much about and love so much that they just started with that little thing of, I don't need anybody else's help. And over years, 
Now they walk in a desolate wasteland everywhere they go. It's heartbreaking. Now, while following that path of sin will always have the same result, I firmly believe that living for Jesus will also always have the same result. It's a harder road. It takes us down difficult paths that we probably would not have ever chosen on our own. But it gets us to the place of peace and of rest and of joy. Even if it's a lifetime of trial and difficulty here, even if it's persecution and during the tribulation, it will literally cost people their lives to say, I am a Christian. I follow Jesus. It will be worth every bit of it. That there will be no one in heaven regretting that decision. So it has the same end every time. So no matter what trial we're facing now, no matter what kind of enemy we're dealing with, whether it's even the devil himself, man, we serve the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And he is in absolute control of all things. And all things will be made right by him. We are so blessed. And I love the fact that even as it talks about us as believers here, that they are called chosen and faithful. Man, that is a title I want to be worthy of carrying. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, as always, we are so blown away by the power of your word, by the fact that we serve God who knows the end from the beginning and wants to reveal parts of it to us. God, I pray that we would not take it lightly, that we would be changed, that we would be those that so desperately want to be worthy of the titles you've bestowed upon us, that we are chosen, that you have made us faithful because you're faithful. God, change our lives. Use us in any way you want, that we could share the good news with the people in our lives, that we would see people come to you, that we'd see souls saved and we'd see heaven expanded. Lord, speak through us, shine through us, that people would know who you are. Give us opportunity to share your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.